What did he mean when he said this? Or what does this word mean? Because I didn't quite understand it. Or he said this, but I thought that it was that. And what we find is that while we were so obsessed, we were so frustrated at them bumbling around, they heard something. And in that hearing, they started asking questions. And it gave we, as parents, an opportunity to disciple. That's a wonderful thing. Don't ever feel your children are doing too much. Let them be kids. Amen. I said that earlier today at the uh, beginning of service, but I mean it. Uh, and I love it. Let's open your Bibles. Open them with me to Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 11. Part of me wants to temper your expectations. Because I glanced up at the clock and I said, I am not Pastor Dan. So I won't keep you for another hour. But what I will do, God willing, is hopefully direct your attention to one who matters. Hopefully give you a greater appreciation for something that's already been done. And hopefully help you to find rest in Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's a beautiful passage, is it not? Just to give you a little background on this week. I've been studying through Philippians for a while, and I had finally said I'm through. I'm done. I'm not touching it again. And then I moved on to Colossians, and I had worked through the whole book, and I said, this would be wonderful. Oh, how rich. Oh, how joyous. And then Pastor Dan started going through Colossians with the men's ministry on Saturdays. And I'm like, you've taken away all that I had. Shame on you. And so I went back to Philippians and I started reading it again. And I started reading it both in English and yes, 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 in Greek. And I realized that I had it wrong the whole time. Thank the Lord for Pastor Dan ruining my Colossians series and bringing me back to Philippians. I say that because last night, as I was sitting in my study, in the chair, I stared at a computer screen. And I said, how do I connect this to the lives of the people? I walk upstairs, I go to my wife and I say, here's what I have. And she says, let me pull that passage up. And so she goes to her computer. She pulls up the passage and she reads it out loud to me. And she says, I don't get that from this passage. I was deflated. I said, if she doesn't get it from this passage, then why am I getting it from this passage? Is it the way I'm explaining it? Do I have it all jumbled up in my head? And so I did what every good husband would do. Rather than listening to my wife, I picked up the phone and I called a lifeline. <laughs> this particular lifeline is a Greek scholar. And I said, brother, I said, open your Greek New Testament. I apologize for calling him on a Saturday first. And he said, if I didn't want to talk to you, I would have sent you straight to voicemail. What do you have? I say, open your Greek New Testament. And I said, here's what I see. Am I off the mark? And he said to me, he said, no, 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 no. But you're missing something. To which I said, I'm in trouble. And he says, don't add meaning to something that isn't plain. 
He said, you did right going to the Greek and reading through this and translating and all that fun stuff. He said, but the Greek doesn't add much to this passage. And I say, well, what do you mean? Hopefully, I'll show you what I mean. I want to give you a little background about the Philippian church. Paul, on his second missionary journey, travels through all of these regions, and he lands in a little Roman colony called Philippi. Now, Paul's tradition, his custom when he would show up at a city was to go to the synagogue, to go and listen and then to proclaim Christ. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. For reference, you can refer back to Acts chapter 16. Now, Jewish tradition tells us that if there were at least 10 Jewish men in an area, then a synagogue would be built. And so the fact that there was no synagogue tells us just how minuscule the Jewish population was in Philippi. So where was Paul to go? How could Paul make use of his time in Philippi? Well, he hears about a prayer service that's occurring at the riverbanks, outside of the city. And he goes, him, Luke, Silas, Timothy. And they find a group of women. And the women listen joyously. He proclaims the gospel to them. And one woman, Lydia, says, come to my house. If I found any favor, come to my house. And her and her entire household were convicted of the gospel and saved. On another occasion, as they were journeying back to that same riverbank, right, it was such a fruitful ground before, so rich people who were willing to listen, there was this one girl who kept shouting things out, proclaiming who they were, and they had gotten so frustrated that Paul cast the demon out of this child. Oh, well, that made her owners, for she was a slave, Upset because, well, they used her as a means of gain. And so Paul was imprisoned. And so was Silas. Paul and Silas, being who they were, took their time of imprisonment as an opportunity to praise God. And so with an earshot of other prisoners, with an earshot of the guards, what did they do? They sang praises. 
hymns, and prayers. It was in Philippi that one particular guard was awakened by an earthquake to the loosened chains and open cells of every prisoner. It was in Philippi that this guard thought his life forfeit, drew his sword, and was about to end it all. And yet Paul shouts out, stop, don't, we're all here. And this guard falls on his knees at the feet of Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And that guard and his household believed and they were saved. That is who Paul writes this letter to. A church, if we can call it that, a gathering of believers smaller than what we have in this room. He writes to them as he is in a Roman prison, close to the end of that imprisonment, and he begins his letter with a particular word. I say letter, this section. He begins the letter with Paulus. <laughs> he says, I give thanks. I give thanks. I give thanks to my God. Pay attention to who the object of Paul's thanks is. Paul doesn't say thank you. Because there's something to that. He gives thanks to my God. Throughout all the New Testament, thanks is directed not to you and I. Not to man. But to God. Paul redirects our sight. Redirects our minds and our attitudes, not to ourselves, but to God. He says, I give thanks to my God in all my remembrance of you. That can also be uh, translated as in every mention of mine, of you. Always. I give thanks to my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Now, I emphasize that as I read the scripture. If you recall, I repeated the line the first time I left out the all. 
And the second time I read it and I pointed out to y'all. We'll get to that. Making my prayer with joy. Whatever it is about these Philippians, whatever it is about their hearts, about their actions, about who they are, Paul has joy when he mentions them in his prayers to God. And then he says, because of your partnership in the gospel, that word partnership can also be considered fellowship. But if we look throughout the entire book, it pops up from time to time. And it draws our attention to something that the Philippians may have done on Paul's behalf. You might say, well, what did they do? Later in the book, we read that they contributed financially to Paul's ministry. They contributed financially to Paul's ability to participate in the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but numbers don't quite add up, do they? I look around in here. We may have pick a number out of the air, but it's certainly less than what was in Philippi. And we know, we hear the prosperity preachers say it all the time, if everybody in this room gave a dollar, we'd be able to raise, boom. Well, if everybody in Philippi gave a dollar, how far do you think Paul could travel? Not very far. But yet rather than be so consumed about the quantity of their gift, rather than to be concerned about how much, how great, how often, Paul says, I thank God because of your fellowship, because of your partnership in the gospel from that first day that I saw you on the riverbanks until now. From the very moment you heard the word of God preached, from the, the, the very second you were convicted, from that moment we were in fellowship in the gospel. From that moment, you and I have been partners in the gospel. And that partnership, that fellowship has endured and continues to endure even now. Now, Paul's use of this now in the original language actually has a article in front of it. The now. It's kind of weird there. But it gives the implication of a not just this temporal now, but this new age now. 
this eschatological now, this in Christ forever now. In other words, it's not just today, as in when I'm writing this letter, but it's in the Christ who is. Yes, even now, we are partners. And then he states his confidence. He says, I'm sure of this. I have confidence in this. I trust in this, that the one beginning a good work in you, the one who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, on the one hand, we read that a work was began. And on the other hand, we read that a work will be brought to completion. One of the things that sticks out here is that this is not an indication of some progressive completing, but more of an indication of the ultimate completion that we will find in the day of Christ. So there are times in which we might find that those who were with us are no longer with us. There are times in which we might think of ourselves, I'm not seeing that progressive sanctification that we spoke about in the catechism. But yet Paul says, I have confidence in this, that he will complete it. That in the day of our Lord, you will be made perfect. That what God has started in your life, he will also finish. Talks about it being right for me to feel this way. And he says, I feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This points us to Paul's time on trial, where he's being accused of this and accused of that, and yet he proclaims the gospel and he says clearly why it is they are accusing him and the gospel was vindicated. And Paul says, even there, even when I stood trial, you were with me. Even when I had to defend the very gospel I was preaching, you were with me. You didn't flee. You didn't withdraw your support of me, you were with me. And the same grace that I partake of, the same grace, the same free gift of God given to me is also yours. For God is my witness, 
Oh, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound. The sense there is that your love may still abound. Their love is abounding, but yet he's saying that it may still abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Really directing our attention away from things that the world may view as important. Away from things that are really insignificant. He causes us to no longer think of little things as so important and helps us to see the big picture. And so that we might grow in knowledge and grow in discernment, abound in knowledge and abound in discernment so that we may approve literally the superior things, that which is excellent, that which trumps every other thing in this world. And so, or in order that, you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And that's peculiar, isn't it? Being pure and blameless. We certainly can't do that on our own. And yet Paul says that as our love abounds, more and more as we grow in wisdom and knowledge and all discernment, we approve that which is excellent, those superior things, and we are to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, hopefully, I've just confused you. Hopefully, you're saying to yourself, the way he introduced this isn't necessarily what he just did. So now let me reorient you to what matters. In verse 11, we read that those who are in partnership with Paul have already been filled. Those who are in fellowship with Paul have already been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, hopefully, an idea of fruit brings to your mind fruit of something else. Fruit of the Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit who produces in us fruit of righteousness. So that's a saying, having been filled with the Spirit that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise 
of God the Father. Do you see that Trinitarian formula there? So we have the Spirit filling those who have trusted and believed. We have that filling coming through the gospel of Christ. And we have that being all directed to the glory and praise of God the Father. That reality happened on the riverbank. That reality happened in the Philippian prison. That reality happened in that jailer's household. That is already done. What Paul is thanking God for is not their financial contribution. Paul is thanking God for their fellowship. Yes, that fellowship is expressed through their financial contribution, but let's not forget, this is at best three, maybe four families. This isn't a very big assembly. This isn't some mega church. This isn't a gigantic congregation, and yet they express their fellowship with Paul through a contribution. Their hearts are with him. And Paul is thankful, not for the meager offering. And oh, he is overjoyed and thankful for that. Yes, he mentions that throughout the book, but for the fellowship expressed by that meager offering. Brothers and sisters, we're not all able to do what others are able to do. Not everybody makes a six-figure salary. Not everybody has the strength or resources to do the things that some can do. But the little that you do have, the little that you are able to participate in, get this, we are still thankful. God is still glorified. You may think that it takes everything in you just to get your kids wrapped up in some piece of cloth and into church on a Sunday morning. But that matters. And for that, we are thankful. That matters. And that has an impact for the advancement of the gospel. You may say, well, I'm not the most personable. I, I don't know how to cook. I, I'm not the most welcoming when it comes to inviting folks over to my house. I don't know what to do, but I can vacuum. 
Brothers and sisters, God is pleased with something as simple, something as meager in the sight of the world as you walking around with a vacuum in your hand to his glory. Because it's not the action that matters. It's the heart. It's the fact that what you do and what you say draws my attention, draws Paul's attention, draws the attention of all who are in the fellowship. Not towards what you're doing, but towards why you're doing it. You see, yes, God is the object of Paul's thanks here. And God should be the object of our thanks. But God is also the reason for the things. Because none of this is possible apart from God. This entire book is about that fellowship. This entire book is about God's work in the hearts of these people and redirecting their attention, not to their capabilities, but to their identity in Christ. He brings us to rest in the fact that we have been filled with his spirit. He brings us to rest in the fact that we have fellowship with Christ. Oftentimes, some will come to the passage and they'll say, well, this, and even the Bibles speak of it. Oh, this is about prayer and this is about thanksgiving. And, and we're going to use this as a, as a model. And we'll say, well, we should, we should give our thanks to God. We should remember one another in our prayers. We should always pray. And we should always pray for everybody. That is hard, isn't it? But yet Paul here, Paul says, every time I think about you, I thank the Lord for you. And this isn't this old southern insult. Lord bless him, but no. Paul is saying, if, if, if I am on my knees praying and you come to my mind in my prayer, I thank the Lord for you because I remember your fellowship. I remember the love you showed me on that riverbank. I remember you, Lydia, inviting me into your home. You, Philippian jailer, doing the same things. And not just the ones who did something for me. He says, all of you. Even the ones who aren't mentioned in Scripture. Even the ones who don't show themselves as being as prosperous or abounding in resources. 
Even the one who sits in the back with two or three little kids and do all they can to keep them under wraps. Paul says, every time you come to my mind, a smile comes on my face. He says, with joy. I thank God for you, every single one of you, because it is with you I have fellowship. And it is because you are in Christ and I am in Christ. We are partakers of that same grace. And so when I'm struggling, when I'm being threatened with imprisonment, when my own people lie about me, and I have to sit here and defend what it is I preach and what it is I teach, you are with me. That same grace, that same grace that carried me through that is the same grace that is carrying you now. And we are in fellowship, one with another, both in our sufferings and in our abounding. When we have much, and when we have little. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That fellowship. That partnership. That fellowship in the gospel is not some temporal thing. It's not some fleeting thought. We plant our flag in the rock that is both unchanging and unchangeable. We cling to we hold on to that which is eternal. That which is ever present. Both from the beginning and even now. Brothers, sisters, that is only true in Christ Jesus. It's not about what the next person is doing. It's not about being consumed with what you're unable to do. Paul is full of joy just remembering that we share in fellowship. He is overjoyed that you and I
will both see the good work that the Lord has begun in us. Brought to completion when our Lord returns. He has confidence in this. Not because we've continued to do this or continued to do that. His confidence is not in you and I. The scripture says, I am sure of this. That the one who began, the God who called you, that unchanging God, that eternal God, that ever-present God, the one who began that good work in you, will not leave it incomplete. The one who started it will show enough finishing. God is where Paul plants his confidence. It's where Paul finds his assurance. And brothers and sisters, it's where you and I ought to find our confidence. It's where you and I can find our assurance. Knowing that he has already filled us. And that he is bringing his work to completion. It's right for me to feel this way. It is right for me to feel this way. Not just about some, but about all of you. Because I hold you in my heart. There's a certain connection there, isn't there? Sort of intimate connection. Those who are not the most bombastic, those who aren't the most prosperous, those who aren't the biggest in number, but Lord, I sure love these people. So much so that my yearning for them is not of my own doing. It's with the affection of Christ. Not with my weak and passing love. But with the same affection that Christ himself has shown towards his people. Not based on anything that you and I have done, but because it pleased him to do so. To offer up himself on behalf of you and I. With that same affection. I yearn for you. I long for you. And then we return to his prayer. He says it. And this is my prayer. 
This is my prayer, that your love might still abound more and more. The love that you're showing me now and have shown me from the beginning, even until now, let that continue. Lord, don't let that fire burn out in these people. Not because I need anything. I've learned contentment, Lord. Let that fire be in them, not just from the beginning until now, but forever. And let them know. Let them know why they have that fire in their heart. Let them grow in that knowledge, knowing that it is you, O Lord, who have brought them near. Let them know that in you, O Lord, they have fellowship, not just with me, but with all believers. And let them see, let them be able to discern, Lord, what is truth and what is falsehood. Let them not be deceived by those who seek to come in and manipulate them, who seek to come and poison the well, as it were. But don't allow their caution to snuff out their fire. Don't allow that discernment to somehow cover up their love. Let that love abound. Let that love be so apparent in their lives. Let it grow. Let it be uncontainable so that they might approve that which is far superior to any and everything. And so be pure and blameless. Paul is talking about the heart to be pure and blameless. He's talking about the motivation that all they do be out of that same love. Let all they do display the same pure and blameless character that our Lord displayed on that cross. And remind them, Lord, that this is only possible, that this can only be done because of the work that you have already wrought in their lives. Because of, of the spirit that you have already filled them with. Because of the Lord that you have already brought them to confess. And it all to your glory. He works all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. 
we do all that we do as Christians to the glory and praise of God. And yet at times we forget. At times we get distracted. At times we find ourselves in a dark place thinking that what we're doing isn't enough. Thinking that when others see me, they'll say that I'm insufficient. Thinking that there's no possible way for me to do or accomplish what God has called me to do and accomplish. Lord, I want your gospel to reach the nations. But I have trouble keeping the lights on. Lord, I want to fellowship with other believers as much as humanly possible, but it takes everything in me just to get these kids in clean clothes and out of the house. Lord, I know you called us all to be witnesses. But I have no idea what to say or how to say it or when to say it. And God says, It's not about how much you do. It's not about what everybody on the outside thinks of you. It's not about how eloquent of speech or how you have a Rolodex in your head or a library of theology to pull from every second of every day to where you can answer just any question that comes forth. little that you do matters. God uses the little that you and I insignificant ill-prepared you and I he uses that to advance his purposes. That same friend of mine that I called, the Greek scholar, as I was on the phone, he said, if God can use Balaam's donkey, he didn't say donkey. He said, I'm sure he could use fools like us. Brothers and sisters, don't get down on yourself thinking that what you do do is not enough. For even in that, 
even in you trying to hold those kids together while the preacher's up here preaching or the songs are being sung, the fact that you're doing it is more than enough. Because your heart is abounding in love for the fellowship, much like Paul's is. And that abounding occurs not because you or I somehow made it grow, but because the Spirit who has filled us overflows and produces in us that fruit of righteousness, that desire to see his kingdom advance. And so let us not look on ourselves as insignificant. Let us not get distracted thinking that all we are are distractions. Let us enjoy fellowship in Christ, knowing that the God, the one true God, the triune God, who began this good work in us, will complete it. Let's pray.